Jesus, this morning we just say to you be the glory, to you be the praise. God, may our lives bring you honor. May our lives reflect your worth. Jesus, in this moment, we bring our brokenness. We bring those fallow places of our lives, those cracks and fissures of our lives that we just feel like, man, we need you, Jesus, by the power of your spirit to come and fill us. The broken and cracked places. We need your victory, Jesus. We are not the heroes of this journey. We are not the victors. You are. You are the victorious one. Jesus, you taught us a prayer. And if you know it, I just invite you to say it with me. Father, Father, be with us. Father, come to us. Come to our aid. Father, love us as you. Father, may we love you as you invite us to. In the Gospel of Matthew, teach us this prayer. God, I ask just as in this place, that we, as we say it, we just invite you, God, to work through us. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you guys this morning. My name's Tony. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here. Uh, If you're new or visiting, checking us out, we're glad to have you. Uh, if you are a little person and you would like to hang out with some other little people, uh, Jim is over there, uh, and he would love for you to hang with him and some of the other teachers here. Now, if you are an adult and you're with us this morning, I'm glad you're here. I am actually super excited to be back in John. So as a church, we've been traveling through John for almost a year. It's been epic. It's been fun. And I'm ready to be back in chapter 13. Uh, But I wanted to do, if you haven't been with us, or maybe if you have, maybe we could just do a quick summary of where we've been. So I thought maybe the easiest way to do that was just to say to you, hey, why don't you shout out favorite stories in John over the last year? So John 1 through 12, do you have favorite stories? Women Women at the well, John 4, awesome. Other ones? Water. Water to wine. Cana, chapter 2. Awesome. Others? Lazarus. Lazarus. Okay, cool. Chapter 11, right? Raising of Lazarus. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Awesome. Yeah, chapter 3, right? So, need to be born again by the Spirit. 
What is it? Blind man, chapter 9. Yeah, a conflict that ensues in chapter 9. It's good. Others? Mary and Martha. Okay, yeah, great. That's that's sort of the the play in uh, background in history, but also dovetailing in with Luke that we sort of looped in a little bit there, sort of their background in history. Yep. Others? Baptism? Jesus, or uh, John chapter 1? Yeah, so chapter 1, you have John the Baptist uh, baptizing, right? You have all these baptisms going on, and then Jesus being baptized. John saying, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Others? Perfume, yeah, chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, right? Jesus, right before the triumphal entry, Mary uh, anoints Jesus uh, with perfume, expensive perfume, which Judas doesn't like. Others? Healing the official son, okay. Others? The storm at the sea, okay, yeah, that's good. What is that, seven? I think so. You're going to expose my lack of remembering. All right, so big picture, what do we have? Chapter one, uh, the word moves into the neighborhood, right? You have, you have God, Jesus, right? The word who is with God at the beginning. He is the light and life of the world moving into the neighborhood. You have the highlight of John the Baptist, right? You have the calling of the disciples. Chapter two, you have the wedding at Cana. You have then Jesus saying, you know, that he is going to rebuild the town again. Nicodemus comes looking at him like, what? Right? Chapter three, you have Nicodemus. Right? You have to be born again. Nicodemus comes at night and he's all confused, right? Chapter four, you have the woman at the well. And you, this woman who's in the middle of the day meets Jesus, and Jesus is like, you know, if you drink this water, it well up into eternal life. Right, chapter 5, we get into uh, healing of a man who is uh, born uh, unable to walk, right? It leads to all this conflict. Chapter 6, you have uh, the Jesus is in the wilderness, right? And he feeds the 5,000, and they have discussion about him being the bread of life. Chapter 7, we get into tabernacles, right? So they come back, chapter 7, tabernacles, talking about Jesus. Remember, you have that, the priest pouring the water, and at that climactic moment in the tabernacle ceremony, he says, you know, come to me all who are thirsty. Chapter 8, you have Jesus saying he is the light of the world. Again, captain captured in tabernacles. 9, you have the healing of the blind man. 10, the good shepherd parable. You have Hanukkah. Chapter 11, Lazarus 12, you have the anointing and the triumphal entry, which brings us then to chapter 13. Chapter 13, Jesus gathers with these few friends of his, these disciples, these 12 that he has been with now for about three years. Chapters 13, I'm with them. It's going to be this sort of moment in this room where he has the discussion and a prayer time with them. 19 and 18 and 19 are Jesus' betrayal, his crucifixion trial. 2021, which we'll finish in the fall, are the resurrection and the stories connected to it. So we start in chapter 13. Jesus has this intimate time with the disciples. This is how 13, 1 through 17 reads. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into his heart, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am I doing, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if, classic Peter fashion, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him in classic Peter fashion, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed his feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand that what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for I am. If I then, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are those, or are you if you do them. All right, so that's the beginning of chapter 13. Starts with this sort of reminder of the context historically, right? This is Passover. I think it's the third Passover in John. Remember, Passover is a pilgrimage festival, so folks would go from Galilee or from, ever, from all over the place. Particularly, Jesus has done this like 84-mile journey, right, from uh, Galilee down to Jerusalem a number of times. This time, he's already in Bethany, so this is not a far journey for remembering that God. This is Passover. Passover is the celebration of the Exodus, the remembering that God rescued his people in Israel. So that's kind of the, the large context. At the beginning, right, Jesus says that his hour has come. And what he means here is that, you know, the Father has sent him on this mission. And this mission has lots of contours, but the ultimate sort of outcome of this mission is that Jesus knows he is going to die on behalf of the world. And he knows his hour has come. He's been sent by the Father to fulfill this mission, and then he will die and he will go back to the Father. And John has this beautiful phrase here. He's like, he loves them to the end. Jesus, in this enduring, persevering, self-giving love, never gives up on these people. Which is kind of crazy because then John creates this contrast in verses 1 through 3. You have Jesus never giving up, this enduring, persevering to the end kind of love. And in the midst of it, John highlights that there is a betrayer in the midst. Right, this band of brothers. These people have been traveling together for three years. They've been breaking bread together. They've been drinking delicious Galilean wine. They've been hanging out for three years. They know each other. And it's at this moment, as Jesus is loving to the end, and that John reminds us that there is a betrayer in their midst, and that this betrayer Judas is aligned with the devil, right? And the devil, hasatan, means adversary in Hebrew, the one who opposes God. And that's what Judas is going to do, right? He's going to oppose God and then through that actually become part of God's plan in the world. 
This is kind of the contrast. This is the context, the relational underpinnings as we enter chapter 13. Now, one of the things that happens in verse 4, right, is that Jesus stands up. Now, often when we think of this supper, John doesn't mention that it is the Passover supper, and so we don't know exactly how this plays out in this meal this night in John, but we know in the other Gospels that they celebrate the Lord's Supper this night. One of the things that happens is we have often like a historical imprinting in our brain of like what this looks like, often shaped by da Vinci. Have you seen this? Right? So they're sitting at a table. It's round. It's sort of like they're talking to an audience. Like who would sit at a table like that all on one side? Anyway, sort of a weird setup, right? So when we think then rise, we think of him standing. Everyone else is sitting and he comes out kind of like I'm teaching today and he starts teaching them, right? But we know this is not actually how they sat. This is a little more accurate picture of how they may have sat, right? So they're kind of leaning in, U-shaped table, their feet are towards the side, and they're kind of leaning in. So when it says that Jesus rose, what he's doing then is walking around the outside of that U, washing feet. Now, a few words, one about uh, Jewish attire, so it says he takes off his outer garment. Now for us, it's like, oh, what does that look like? You know, we, we're not like a two-garment kind of people. Like, so anyway, this is the way it works. They have an undergarment. It's kind of like a linen, almost like a nightgown. Uh, anyway, so it kind of goes between the knee and the ankle, sort of an undershirt. You don't wear this out in public. This is an in-the-house attire thing. Then you have an outer garment, just kind of like, I don't know, maybe because we're closer to uh, Latin America, it's a little more like a poncho. Right, so you have a poncho, so you have a hole up here and hole in the arms, but it's kind of like an outer prayer uh, poncho dress. It's called a talit. Uh, if you go to Israel now, you'd see it's sort of blue and white, has a certain feel to it. So he takes off his talit, right? This is the outer garment you would wear, and now he's wearing this uh, undergarment. All right, so that's basic fashion. Uh, and then... Well, we got to think about sort of what's happening culturally at play at this moment. So there's three reasons you wash feet in the Jewish and the Greco-Roman world. One is basic hygiene. You're walking around in sandals. Your feet get dirty, right? Basic hygiene. Let's wash them, okay? Second is hospitality. You're often going between places. Just like if someone goes to your house and they can use your bathroom, Right? When you go to get, you're visiting someone's house, often you would have water out so that they could just wash their feet because they're not in their house. So for basic hospitality reasons, they have a space where you can wash your feet. And third, religious purification. Even in, uh, in Judaism, often the priests, when they would go into the tent of meeting and later the temple, they would wash their feet and their hands before they went into a holy place. Those are the three basic functions of foot washing uh, in the ancient world. There's a couple other things at play. There's also class hierarchies that happen all the time in the Greco-Roman and Jewish world. Right? So you have a lot of class hierarchies. So when you go in and there's, you go into a room and there's a foot washer, the foot washer, even if he's a slave, is almost certainly not uh, Jewish. Right? So the person who would primarily do the foot washing is a Gentile slave. Right? And then you bump up. If there's not a Gentile slave, then maybe you have uh, a, a child. And you kind of work your way up. There are certain people who can wash feet in the ancient world. Even a Jewish male slave would be like, no, that's beneath me. There's no way I am washing feet. 
people. So I want you to imagine this. There's a gathering of people. They all walk in. They see the delicious falafel and some good Galilean wine on the table. They're excited. They pass the bowl as they walk in. They pass the towel. They just ignore it. Oh, that's not me. That's not me. This happens 12 times, 13 really. Pass not me, right? They just walk in, smelly feet and all, start chowing down. And then it's in the middle of this meal when everyone has passed the opportunity to be the foot washer that Jesus stands up. He takes off his outer garment and he is the one who picks up the bowl and starts to work his way around the room. He adopts the posture of the Gentile slave. Now, when he gets to verse 6, Peter, in Greek, has this great, his line is this. This is, this is like a literal translation of Greek and Peter's response. He says this, Lord, you, my, sort of this like stammering response. Beasley Murray has this great quote. He's a author of the Word Biblical Commentary says this, the the impression is given of Peter sputtering in astonishment and incomprehension. You're going to wash my feet? No. No, we need to emphasize then here. You're joking, right? And we need to be really important. We need to emphasize this, and it has to be really clear. Peter is right in his cultural context. Jesus is the one doing the weird thing. Peter, in his cultural context, is like everyone would agree, like, yeah, that's weird. And Jesus, in his sort of normal Jesus' way, in verse 7, he's like, you'll understand later, you know. But that's not enough for Peter. So then verse 8, Peter's like, never, no way are you going to do this. Right? The superior person in that culture does not wash the feet of a subordinate. I don't know, maybe military people get this better than like the people outside the military. But it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen, you know, in the military. Peter, again, he is right in his cultural context. And if we don't understand this, we miss the entire impact of this passage. Culture would have determined that Jesus was wrong. Now, character profile-wise, this fits into Peter's character profile. In Mark 7, he does something kind of similar. Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to suffer and die. And he's going to say, he's like, hey, dude, you can't do this. Stop. Like, come on. what What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. In both cases, Peter is concerned about Jesus. Mark 7, he's concerned about Peter or Jesus actually physically harming himself. In John 13, he's concerned about his leader's social humiliation. In both, though, he profoundly misses the point. I think maybe one sort of thing just to say briefly is that, like, um, just as, like, a, a profile, you know, if you're in first century Israel, the way leadership works is this, right? You have a leader, The leader is on top. The leader dictates. The leader commands. I think we get this, like, in our cultural moment, too, right? They tell other people what to do. This is Peter's basic assumption of what leadership is in the first century. You're on top. You tell people what to do. They follow your lead. 
right? Jesus sort of flips this around. He says, okay, I'll take a sort of a different approach. He says, the leader is the one who goes on the bottom, and he is the one who serves. So Jesus takes sort of this posture that is fundamentally in God's the hierarchy of this culture, redefining what does it look like to participate in God's kingdom, right? He says, oh, no, the leader is the one who goes from below. The leader is the one who serves. Now, if you notice, Jesus' response, he doesn't cave into Peter's passion or his cultural embeddedness. He simply says in verse 8, if you don't want to wash, you'll have no share with me. Couple things going on here. Share uh, means is meros in Greek. It means a few things. We've interpreted share, portion, uh, part. Often in the New Testament, it's connected to this moment in the future, right? So Jesus is crucified. He's then resurrected. He ascends to be with the Father, and there's assumption that Jesus will come again, and He will come in the fullness of the power of the kingdom, and He will right, take all the evil, injustice, wrong that is on earth and with like a huge sin magnet, suck it out, so that then creation becomes like Eden, but even better. Right? So there's this assumption, and there's this idea, one of the dominant metaphors is that there will be this huge banquet. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, when I suck all the sin and evil and stuff out of the world and we have this huge party, you will not have a seat at that table. Only the people that have a seat at the table are the ones who are cleansed. And he's also saying to you for three years. That's like the future drivenness of it, but then the present drivenness is, hey, you've been with me for three years. We've walked together. Hey, I'm doing this new thing in the world. I'm going to launch this church thing, and this church thing is going to have people that are cleansed as a part of it. Do you want to be a part of that, Peter? So then what is then this connection between cleansing and foot washing? And it's just kind of confusing in this moment. One of the things we have to realize is throughout John, Jesus has done signs. You remember them? Right? Numbers of signs. And the foot washing almost functions like a sign in the gospel of John. Right? The sign, foot washing, actually points beyond itself to the cross, right? Through which we are actually cleansed of sin. So there's a physical cleansing that put, points beyond itself to the cross. Right? Even the language John uses here is fascinating. He says Jesus lays aside his outer garment, right? Which is the identical language that Jesus uses in John 10 when he talks about the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. It's literally the same word in Greek. To lay aside the undergarment is the same thing as laying down your life, which Jesus will now do the next day at the cross. Signifies, but not done. Marian Meyer Thompson in her commentary says this foot washing signifies, but not done, does not accomplish that cleansing. Foot washing, a service that a slave can be expected to render to a master, foreshadows and interprets Jesus' death even as he willingly washes his disciples' feet, so he willingly lays down his life for them. Now, verse 9, Peter doesn't get this. He's like, give me a bath, you know, whatever. I'll do what anything. Which is, again, sort of reflects both his desire to be with Jesus, but also his profound misunderstanding. But I think this is why also Peter, or uh, Jesus, highlights Judas in this moment. 
And for a few reasons. One, did you notice that Judas had his feet washed? Judas' feet are washed, and yet Jesus says someone is here who is not clean. So clearly, right, foot washing does not lead to the cleansing that Jesus is talking about. That will happen through the cross, and that is where people are going to miss out, right? Especially Judas, when he betrays and turns about, turns against Jesus, right? Judas has clean feet, but a dirty heart. And so their feet are all washed, and now Jesus goes back to his seat, and he's kind of reclining. And he asks them, right, this question, verse 12, do you understand what I just did for you? And the answer, like, they leave. No. Clearly not. They don't know he is about to die. Like, they literally don't know. They're going to wake up in a day and a half and be like, all of their hopes are going to be shattered. They clearly do not get all of what Jesus is going to do through the cross, right? The early church will kind of work this out. But like earlier in John, Jesus says a lot of things that they only get in part, right? John 2, he says, I'm going to rebuild this temple in three days. And they're standing in here, I'm like, what? You know, John 3, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Enter my mother's womb, what? Right, Jesus is constantly doing this in John. But what he does here in 13 through 17 is focus on what they do know. This is really important. Verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and I am. I am your rabbi. You are my disciples. Right? They know this, and know, they know what this means. Right? When he calls them in chapter 1, they know in their brains the implications of being called by a rabbi and what does it mean to follow a rabbi. Right? There's all kinds of things here. Probably the simplest way to say it is this. Anyone who is called by a rabbi knows that they will walk in their rabbi's steps. Right? Follow in the dust of the rabbi, be covered in the dust of his feet. Right? And what that means is he's walking with his little sandals, flicking up dust as he goes, and that dust is going to flick onto the front of his legs. And you know if you're covered in the dust of his, the rabbi, him wherever he goes, sandals, you know you are following your rabbi well because you're literally following him wherever he goes and doing what he does. This is not a buffet. This is not a pick-your-own-adventure. This is you do everything that your rabbi does. Every single disciple that is called, the Talmudim, right, the disciples that are called, every single one of them knows this is the implication. They are going to do exactly what Jesus says. They're going to follow his example. Hence, you get to verse 14. What does he say? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Remember, I'm your rabbi. You ought to do this. We all agreed to this. You've been doing this for three years. It didn't change tonight. We are all on the same page here, right? Verse 15, for I have given you an example. That's what a rabbi does. A rabbi says, this is how I'm living, talking, doing, praying, whatever. I've given you an example. What do you do? Right? You do what I've done. I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Pretty straightforward. They know this. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. A messenger greater than the one who sent him. Hey, I did this. You call me Lord. You call me rabbi. And yet, you're too good to wash one another's feet? Verse 17, if you know the, that they were called in chapter you if you do them. Right? They knew from day one that they were called in chapter one that they were meant to become like Jesus. Right? That involves foot washing. From day one, Jesus has been offering himself as an expression of God's self-giving love in the world. 
foot washing and the cross are not exceptions to that. Right? They make sense of all the things he did leading up to this point. Right? John 1, what does John 1 tell us? He does not consider, hey, I'm just going to hang out in heaven. No, what, is, what does the word do? He enters into the neighborhood, the brokenness of our planet and our life. He enters in. Right? This is Philippians 2. And as Paul says, right, he, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to grasp, made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant. Right, this is John 10. What does the shepherd do? He lays his life down for his sheep. Right, this has been happening throughout John, and now it's having concrete expression at a dinner, at the beginning of chapter 13, and will culminate on the cross. One thing I want to emphasize, really important, verse 17. Sometimes I think we think in terms of like self, Jesus' self-giving love leads to sort of a, a depressed, malnourished, this like life. Right? That sacrifice somehow leads to this like terrible way of being in the world. Like, uh, just be better to do my own thing, right? But that's not what he says. He says this, if you know these things, blessed, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus frames human flourishing in terms of self-giving love and the blessing that flows from that. Right? And again, this is not abnormal. Jesus has already told his disciples in chapter 12, the weed has to fall to the ground and die, and from it, right, it bursts with life. Now you have to lose life to gain it, he says. Right? John 10.10, he says this, that he has come to give life and have it to the full, and that this happens through self-giving love, right? The shepherd is the one who gives his life so that the sheep can experience love and experience flourishing and abundant life. He says, now follow in my lead. Do as I have done. There you go. So the question is, how does this then relate to our everyday life? Right, so you're working at a grocery store, you're parenting little kids through the night, you're um, retired and trying to figure out how to rock it, whatever, like, whatever stage, age you're in, how does this actually impact your everyday life with God? There's two questions I want to ask. The first is this, who are you following? Peter and his disciples, and the disciples, as they enter the upper room and they start to eat, right, they're simply following the customs of the day. Right, they're not doing anything wrong, per se, if you think about it. They're likely having a good time, they're hanging out, they're joking probably with each other, they're laughing, you know, about something that happened earlier in the day. Mostly, they're just living into their cultural moment and in their cultural embeddedness. They are also blind to a number of things. And one of the things that makes me wonder and a little bit worry about is like, so in our cultural moment, what are we blind to? Like, what are we missing? So I tried to think about it. I tried to think like, okay, so in this sermon, like, what would be really helpful? Right, so I was trying to think like, so what is that moment in our everyday life when we're like, oh, that's beneath me. Oh, I wouldn't do that. You know, that's because that's like Peter's response, right? It's like, oh, I'm... That's the Gentile slave circle. Like, I wouldn't do that. And I was trying to think of, like, where does that hit the ground for us? 
And I thought about it. I don't think that's our issue. A little bit. And I realized that I actually don't think that's our issue. And I mean this from a few, few standpoints. I think most of us, I have yet to meet someone who's like, oh, I won't serve that way. That's beneath me. Like, I have yet to meet someone in this body, right? So I'm teaching to this body. I have yet to meet someone in this body who's like, you know, only that race can do that. Or only that class of people can do that. I actually think, I have not met any of you that if I said, hey, would you clean the toilet? Or would you do this? You wouldn't say, okay, that's not beneath me. I think all of us would, and there's a reason. For 2,000 years, we have been influenced by Jesus' leadership as a culture, right? So most of us do not live in a high sort of class and honor society where we assume that things are beneath us. We might not like washing feet. Feet are dirty. They smell. That's a normal response. But I think if we said, if Jesus said to us, hey, I did this, you do it, we'd say, okay, like I'll do it. I don't like it, but I'll do it. So I was trying to think of like, okay, so what is then, what does it look like to follow Jesus for us? Like, what is the barrier that makes it so we don't wash feet? We don't serve. We don't give ourselves in self-giving love to people. Like, what is that barrier? I was thinking about it. What I realized as I was sort of praying and thinking is that our issue isn't If we made it to that meal and Jesus said, hey, let me wash your feet, Uh, you know, you wash, we'd say, okay, our issue is that we don't make it to the meal. We live in this cultural moment where we are so driven and carried away by so many things. I was thinking about this, right? So if you go from basically middle school through retirement and you ask every single age demographic, they will all say they are crazy, busy, and overwhelmed. The middle schooler is like, oh my gosh, I have all these tests. I have to like rocket at gymnastics. I have to do this. I have to do that. They're stressed, right? Then you get into the 20s and the 20-year-olds like, man, I got tests, but I also have like 50 social obligations and I'm overwhelmed by which one to attend, right? Because you got to cram in all the cool stuff, right? So you're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on the meal because something better might come up, right? That's totally, if you're 20, you're thinking like, that's not me. And you're like, yes, it is. If you're a young family, you're thinking, you know, you got little kids, you're thinking, man, I don't know. You know, you don't even get to sleep through the night. You look at your spouse at night, you don't even say goodnight, you just look at them and say, good luck, you know? <laughs> right? You get into your, your driving now, everywhere, high school, middle school, you are mom or dad, Uber driver, shuttling kids everywhere. You're exhausted. You're just like, all I want to do is not drive. And then you get to retirees, and retirees, you look at them, and you're like, now you're rocking it. You have all this time. They're like, I am busier than I've ever been in my life. We laugh, but the reason we end up not following Jesus' example, washing feet and giving ourselves in self-giving love, is because we have adopted the cultural paradigm that all of us relate to, and so do our neighbors. You know, we say to ourselves, I was thinking this myself this week, I was thinking, well, everyone does it. Everyone lives this way. And I thought to myself, whoa, is that really the life I am living? I'm looking out and saying, everyone does it, therefore I should. Didn't Jesus say, follow my example? Not the example of my neighbor or my coworker or my 
best friend who does it this way. We live in a culture right now dominated by FOMO, the fear of missing out. We're dominated by YOLO. You only live once, so you better achieve as much as you can, have the best experiences, cram them in, because you've got to get all those experiences in before you die. Right? Because we do not live in a culture that is framed by an eternal kingdom or an eternal king. So the question is, who are we following? Are we following Jesus or are we following the cultural narrative that our coworkers, our neighbors, and our friends are sort of posting about on Instagram and Facebook? One of the frames we often use here at Wellspring is called centered set. And it's this sort of idea that Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. That's symbolized by the cross. And the question is, are you moving closer? Amen. Right? Often we think, oh, you know, we end up thinking, I think the right thoughts. Great. Think the right thoughts. No one is against thinking the right thoughts. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, follow my example. And following his example means aligning our heart and life with him and his kingdom. Putting him at the center. And when we put him at the center, we experience the flourishing, the blessing that he says, hey, if you know this and you do it, you will be blessed. There's a blessing connected to obedience, to embodying the way of Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus. Now, I'm very aware this doesn't happen overnight, right? If you're going like that way, right, or you're stuck, you're entrenched, the way you're doing life, we don't change immediately. Very aware of this. Personally and just corporately, change does not happen so that The question is, how do we start shifting the way we do life so that we can actually follow the way of Jesus. So that we can actually lean into and replicate his self-giving love in the world. One of the things I think, one of the ways this starts is by changing the way we think. Now, I'm not like a huge like Bible memorization. I didn't grow up in the church, so I never grew up in like a culture where it was like, hey, if you memorize the most verses, you get a prize. Or like, Hey, if you memorize the most verses, everyone thinks you're cool. Like, I don't care about that. What I care about is this. We need to have the way of Jesus, the words of Jesus in our minds all the time so that when we have these opportunities to give ourselves in love, we think, man, yeah, Jesus, you washed the disciples' feet. I want to follow in your footsteps. So my challenge to you this week is memorize verses 13 through 17. So you remember, hey, Jesus is the one who's the example you're following. If he's going to do it, why wouldn't you? And as you memorize it, let it just marinate in your head. And as you go about life, just hear Jesus' words echoing in your mind. Not so you can win a prize. Not so that everyone thinks with Jesus, guy, scholar, or whatever. But so that your mind is aligned with Jesus so that he is in the center of your way you are thinking and approaching life. Who are you following? Practical. Hey, try and bring Jesus' words into the forefront of your brain. The second question this morning is this. Who are we serving? One of the things that strikes me about this passage is that Jesus, he doesn't sort of wait for someone else to pick up the towel and the bowl. He just sees the need and he does it. 
He doesn't wait for someone to ask him. You notice that? My wife is actually amazing at this. Like literally in the last like two weeks, I, she has like helped someone on our block whose kid couldn't get to school, so she took him to school. Someone else had a baby. She's like trying to figure out how to serve them. She brings cookies to everyone just because she's really good at baking, but they love it. Like she's constantly doing this. She is like a serving Swiss Army knife. You know, it's like any context, she just kind of gets it. Me? Not so much. So I'm like, I think if I was like one of the disciples that night, I'd walk in, and I just wouldn't even notice that everyone's feet are dirty and no one washed. I would just kind of, you know, get up there, start eating. My husband is like that. Oh, and dirty feet and all. I know some of the wives here are like, yeah, my husband is like that too, you know? Some of us just do not see those things. And for us, we need to actually be increasingly intentional about what does it look like to serve people in our life. Because if we're not intentional about it, we will miss it. So I actually want to take a moment right now and just get uber practical. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to think right now, three contexts. One, your family. If you want to write this down, there's little sermon note things you can write on. If you're in this room, it's a little more of a journey. It's over on the piano. Um, Three contexts. Your family, your literal street where you live, and your workplace. And I just want to use this as a prayer moment. I just want you to say, God, I'll pray for us, and I just want you to sort of be present. Because I think one of the things is, this is, not, this is not some sort of pragmatic exercise. This is about aligning our lives with how God wants to lead us in our everyday paths of life. So this is a prayer exercise of listening. Spirit, who do you want me to serve? Who is in need in my family? Who is in need of practical service or maybe a word of encouragement? Or you would give us a name or on your block. So Spirit, I just pray that you would speak to us. You would give us a name. You would give us a person of someone in our life that you want us to serve. We're just going to sit here for a second, God, and we're just going to wait for you to lead us. And we just pray you would bring a face to mind or maybe an interaction we had that sort of sparked something in us, just a person. Or I'm going to bring you back. And... Now I want us to think in terms of, okay, so you have made, hopefully you have a person. If you don't, repeat each day this week until you have someone in mind. Now one of the things we often talk about at Wellspring is this idea of ABLE, right? ABLE is our sort of basic discipleship acronym. A, take some time each week to attend to the speaking voice, the presence of God. Take from the scriptures. Bless someone inside and outside the church. Uh, Take some time each week to learn from the scriptures. E, take some time each week to eat with someone inside and outside the church. Eat is a metaphor. Spend time with people. Be present to them. 
Invite them into your rhythms in your life. So you have this person in your mind, hopefully. What, what do they need? Do they need a, be, to be blessed in some way? Is there a way you can serve them or offer a word of encouragement to them? Maybe prayer. Or do they need you just to spend time with them, to eat with them, to just break some bread with them, take them out to lunch? How do you think that person, how is God inviting you to meet that person, either blessing or eating with them? I grant this is very practical. But I think this is sort of the nuts and bolts of what Jesus is actually talking about. Someone actually had to take off their outer garment and pick up a towel. We actually have to think about a person and figure out how to love and serve them. And then three, I'd say this, when are you going to do it? And I think this is the key moment in this whole thing. This is where the busyness and crazy of our culture undermines the self-giving love of Jesus in our life. Them out, and then something. Because we have this idea, this person. Yeah, I want to do this. Oh, I'm going to invite them out. And then something happens. And then it goes another week, and another week, and then we forget. And then we're like, oh yeah, wasn't I going to do this? When? The pivotal question in our cultural moment. And then fourth, I don't want you to tell anyone. For a couple reasons. One, from a habit formation perspective, it makes you feel like you've done it even though you haven't, right? So before you do it. And on the other side, I want this to be your worship of Jesus this week. Right? You can sing songs as worship. Worship is ultimately about giving worth and value to God to where it is due. One of the ways we do that is we say, Jesus, you are my center. You are my example. I am going to follow in your steps. I'm going to follow your leading, and I'm going to worship you through this exercise of serving another human being this week because, Jesus, you are the center of my life. This is not a check mark on a box that you did the homework. This is your living embodiment of worship in the beginning of June 2019. Self-giving love. We're gonna, now to help us sort of just settle into Jesus' self-giving love, we're going to celebrate communion this morning as a way of just remembering the extent to which Jesus loved us and offers himself to us. On this same night, when he's washing their feet, at some point, he takes bread, which is on the table, gives thanks for it, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he takes some wine gives thanks for it. He says, this is the blood, the new covenant shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Take it and drink. And as we enter worship, we're going to invite you up here and there's going to be someone standing up here and they're going to say, the body of Jesus broken for you. And you're going to have an opportunity to receive Jesus's body, his sacrifice for you. It's a moment of communion with the risen Christ.
You're going to have an opportunity to receive the blood of Jesus, which is shed for you. Right? The cleansing blood of Jesus, which clean spring as we have from the inside out. And one of the things we do at Wellspring is we have everyone sort of move forward and there's people up here. And one of the reasons we do that is it's a reminder in a centered set world that we are all coming as individuals and as a community to Jesus together. And one of the reasons we walk up here and receive for another human being is we realize that like sometimes we actually need to look someone in the eyes and say, yes, Jesus offers himself even to you. And as we enter into worship, I want to invite the worship team up. And I would invite you also to take a moment right now. If there are things in your life, broken patterns, things in your life that are just out of whack, if Jesus is not the center, this is a time to just say, God, I want you to be the center. This is a time of confession. This is a time of repentance. This is a time to say, God, I want my heart and life to mirror yours. If you're serving communion, if you could come forward now, that'd be great. I'm going to take a moment just to, to pray for us as we enter worship and celebrate communion, as we remember the self-giving love of Jesus. God, I am so grateful for you and your love for us. That just as you wash the feet and love us, you give of the disciples that night, God, you serve and love us. You give us yourself. You lay down your life for us. And God, in this moment, we just invite you to come to convict us, to orient our hearts and lives to you that we might follow your example, that we might follow your lead, that we might be a people after your own heart, God. God, we bring all of who we are into your presence. We say thank you and ask you to show up transform us. Come, Holy Spirit.